0: This is the word of the Lord. And they sent to to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are gathered here because you are our one supreme king. And Lord, you rule over us with a written word. Lord, we have seen over the course of our lives that your words are true, your promises are faithful. The gospel is full of grace. And Lord, we love to be a part of your kingdom and we long for your kingdom to expand here in the earth, in Bellingham, and Whatcom County, in the Pacific Northwest, in our country and in every land. And so Lord, um, would your word go forth and stir in us a deep loyalty and allegiance to your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the great, greatest blessings of the COVID 19 pandemic was that it forced many churches like ours to think more deeply about the relationship between the church. And the state. Uh, we are a Protestant church. We're a Presbyterian church. We believe in Reformed theology. If you're visiting with our church, we're a Presbyterian church. And in the, uh, the last few years, there has been a renewal happening among pastors and theologians and thinkers of retrieving a Protestant political theology. And uh, I've mentioned this multiple t- times over the past few years that uh, throughout my ministry, you know, one of the hallmarks of our church is that we believe that the gospel transforms everything about human life no part of human life is left untouched by the gospel but for many churches uh, politics remains untouched Uh, Christians have fears of their church becoming partisan you know that our church can be a republican church or democratic church and so they say let's just leave politics uh, out of the pulpit and I've wrestled personally with this question but uh, when COVID hit uh, churches had to start thinking about their relationship to the state because when the government is shutting down churches, you can't avoid that question anymore. What do we think of the state? You're forced to confront it, and I think that has been a good thing. And honestly, that's part of the reason why over the past couple of years, the books that we've been studying as a church, First Samuel, in the book of Revelation, we spent a lot of time in those two books. The reason was because those are both highly political books of the Bible. First Samuel is about the Israelites wanting a king like the kings of the nation, and they go against God's wisdom and the, the effects that that had on them. And then Revelation is about the early Christians dealing with the Roman Empire and the political forces in the Roman Empire and also in the political structures surrounding Jerusalem. Christians throughout history have had to deal with sinful, unbelieving and often wicked governments. And so we have to think through the relationship between the gospel and the state as a church community. Now, this passage that I just read is maybe the most famous political statement in the whole Bible, where Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, it would be very easy to interpret what Jesus is saying as... Uh, Let's keep politics and religion separate. You know, Caesar's got his stuff. God's got his stuff. And so Caesar can do his political things over here and religious people can have their private religion over here. And they just, let's not mix the two things up. Maybe that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And I'll tell you that if we read it that way, that's exactly what Caesar would want us to do. He would say, yeah, great. I'll be over here running the government however I want to and you can pray in your closets and read your Bibles and I'll leave you alone and you leave me alone and uh, everyone will be happy. Let's not mix them together. Unfortunately, the divorcing of the state and the spiritual life is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying in this verse. And I think these verses give a profound baseline for a Christian political theology. And I think Jesus' words here are immensely helpful. They're, they're, they're so profound. And when you think, they're so simple. It's just a few words that he says. And you think of the depth of them, and they lead to all kinds of insights. And, uh, and, so, and of course, it's an election year, so maybe it's an appropriate topic for us. So this morning, I want to answer just two simple questions from this passage from Mark chapter 12. And this is what they are What does Jesus reject? in our political theology, right? What does he warn us about? And then what does Jesus encourage in our political theology? What does he reject? And what does he encourage? And I have two answers to each of those questions that we find in this passage. And this is a topic I'm personally really interested in, so I'm glad to be able to share some thoughts with you this morning. So, first question. What does Jesus reject in our political theology. What does Jesus reject in our political theology? And one, one of the things you notice about this passage in verse 13 there, you see what it says in verse 13? And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So there are these two groups that come together to challenge Jesus. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is odd because these two groups have basically opposite worldviews and they would have been enemies of each other. And so all of a sudden they're kind of joining on the same team to challenge Jesus. And I think that they both represent versions of political action that Jesus rejects. And so I want to talk about each of them. Okay. So the first one is that Jesus rejects the Pharisees who represent revolution. Jesus rejects the Pharisees who represent revolution. Revolution means when you're overthrowing existing authority structures. And that's what a revolution is. And so you'll notice the question that the, uh, the Pharisees bring to Jesus in verse 14. It says, And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, this is exactly the kind of question that the Pharisees would ask because the Pharisees were what was called zealots. And the zealots were a movement of Jews in the first century who wanted to revolt against the Roman Empire. And actually, about 20 years before Jesus' ministry, there was, there was one Jew in particular, Judas the Galilean, who started a revolt. The, the Romans had imposed the poll tax on the Jews, which is the exact tax that the Pharisees are talking about here. They had imposed the poll tax. And Judas the Galilean got a bunch of people together. He's like, we're going to go to war with the Romans. The Romans pretty quickly stamped, stamped it out. But that spirit of revolt continued among the Jews all the way until the Jewish wars that started in 66 uh, AD and ended with Jerusalem being besieged and destroyed by the Romans. And so basically what the Pharisees are asking Jesus Is are you on the side of the people being oppressed by the Romans? Are you gonna help us tear down the authorities who are over us? Tearing down authorities is the spirit of revolution. Now, normally, when Christians think of the Pharisees, you know, when you think, if you've read through the Gospels and you hear about the Pharisees, what does it make you think of? Most people think of very conservative, traditional people in the church who are judging everyone, and they're self-righteous, and they make rules about everything. And of course, I think that's an appropriate parallel of the Pharisees, but I think there's also a definite case to be made that progressives in our generation are also bear the marks of the Pharisee. It is the left in our culture that wants to tear down the authority structures that are in place. And uh, just as the Pharisees were always policing what everyone said and what they thought, progressives are the ones who make all the rules about what's politically correct and what can be said and what cannot be said. There is a Pharisaical spirit about it, and the Pharisees were an oppressed people. The Jews had for centuries lived under the uh, pagan powers of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, and now finally the Romans, and it had produced a profound resentment in them. And so Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' revolutionary spirit is incredibly insightful. This is what he says, verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So what Jesus is basically saying is you guys are always saying if you really love God, you would stick up for the oppressed people and go fight the Romans, but you have Roman coins in your pocket. And when the Romans make you rich, you're, you're a part of the Roman system, and yet you want to judge the Roman system and tear down the authority structure when it, they try to impose taxes on you. And so the big problem with political revolution is hypocrisy. People criticize people who are in power so that they can get power for themselves, and then they do the very things that they had been criticizing the people in power for doing. It's hypocrisy is the problem with a revolutionary spirit. And one of the things we learned from the Pharisees is that the most revolutionary people are also the most tyrannical. They want, they're the most controlling of other people. And that's, that truth has played out countless times in history. Uh, communism is basically a revolutionary political system. That's what it is at its heart. Is It says that all of human history... Is about oppressed people overthrowing the authorities and the people in power that are over them. And uh, basically, every communist revolution has ended up being massively oppressive. The oppressors are just as oppressive as the people that were oppressing them. There is hypocrisy at its root. And so, one of the most important pieces of Jesus' political theology is that it is not revolutionary. He didn't form an army, he didn't overthrow the Romans. And actually, later in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul will say uh, that the pagan authorities are servants of God, and he commands Christians to pay their taxes. And so Jesus warns the Pharisees, listen, if you're going to go to war with Rome, it will only lead to destruction, and it really did. The Pharisees were destroyed, uh, and and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, okay? So, uh, So the first thing is that Jesus rejects the Pharisees who represents revolution. But there's another path that he also rejects, is that Jesus rejects the Herodians who represent resignation. Jesus rejects the Herodians who represent resignation. They've resigned themselves to the political structures of the Roman Empire. So while the Pharisees said that they were not corrupted by Roman power while they had Roman coins in their pocket um, uh, the Herodians were those who had aligned themselves with the Romans. So the name Herodian, it comes from the dynasty of King, uh, king Herod the Great. And uh, he was a half Jew who, he's most famous for building the second temple. So when you read the Gospels and it says Jesus went into the temple, that was the temple that was built by Herod. And, uh, and he was criticized by many of the Jews for you know, changing different aspects of Jewish worship. But most importantly, Herod was a client king Of the Romans. And so when the Pharisees ask Jesus, should we pay the taxes? If he says, yes, you should pay the taxes, then the Pharisees are gonna say, why aren't you sticking up for the oppressed people and revolting against the Romans? But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay the taxes, then the Herodians are gonna say, oh, you're starting a revolt and we're gonna have you arrested. And so they're trying to trap him. Now, the Herodians represent resignation. They've basically said, the Romans are in power. And there's nothing we can do about it, and they've resigned themselves politically that if you can't beat them, join them. And so they have no moral voice against the evils of Rome. The Romans, the Herodians represent resignation, and Jesus rejects this as well. And I'm going to talk more about this in the second point. But what way, what are ways that Christians can become resigned to the political structures around us as well? How is resignation? A temptation for us well one way is is that we can become overly partisan if christians begin to align the gospel with the republican party or the democratic party and we can become complicit in the sins of both parties kind of the city of man and i'm not saying that christians shouldn't serve in political parties you know i think in many ways that's what you need to do that is the system of the world. But Christians must maintain a critical distance and posture toward them. And the way we do that is we maintain the centrality of the church in cultural change. We believe that God's key agent in cultural change is not the state, but the church. And the state is secondary to what God is doing through the church. Okay, So that's one way that we can become resigned. But I think a second version of resignation is probably a bigger issue. And it's the privatizing of the Christian faith. It's when we say Christianity is just about how individual souls get to heaven when they die. Or it's about my personal relationship with Jesus. It's just a private spirituality. Which, of course, Christianity, the Lord gives us the hope of heaven. And it's a tremendous uh, promise. And we do have personal relationships with Jesus. But we forget that Jesus' message was that the kingdom of heaven is establishing itself in the earth. Jesus is building a civilization, a culture, a city in the earth. By overly privatizing the Christian faith, we give up our cultural voice. And so I believe Jesus' political theology rejects both revolution and resignation. But in just one sentence, Jesus responds with maybe the most profound political statement ever spoken. And so that... Is our, answers our second question. Okay, so we've looked at what does Jesus reject in our political theology, but second, what does Jesus encourage in our political theology? What direction does he lead us? And this is Jesus' answer, verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. And of course, they marveled at him because, you know, Jesus is very clever. They, brought, they were trying to trap him, and he found a clever way out of the trap. They're like, wow, he's so smart. They avoided it. But I think there's something more to marvel at. I'm not even sure they realize the implications of how profound a statement that Jesus had, that he is inviting us to meditate and to think about what does it mean? What should be rendered to Caesar and what should be rendered to God? That's the question that we should be asking And so I think this statement tells us two things about how Christians should approach political change. Okay, the first thing is that the church must work for reformation. The church must work for reformation. Instead of a revolution, it's reformation. Now, what's so brilliant about Jesus saying is that on the one hand, he says, all right, you're going to have to get used to it, you're going to live under unbelieving Caesar's, and you're going to have to pay taxes to them. And so that's the structure that God has in place in this age. And you have to get used to that. But when he says that Caesar's image is on the coin, and then he says render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, I mean, you could say, well, are you saying that all the money that has Caesar's image on it belongs to Caesar? I mean, could he just tax us as much as he wanted and take as much of that money, and we owe it to him because it's got his image on it? Well no because he follows it up with this statement to render to God what is God's. And you have to ask the question, what belongs to God? Is it just spiritual things? Is it just prayer and you know what I do in my prayer closet and reading my bible privately is that the only thing that belongs to God? Well you have to ask, well the coins have Caesar's inscription, what has God's inscription on it? Everything. <laughs> God made everything and everything he made belongs to him, and bears his mark. And of course, most importantly, God's inscription is on every single human being. They all owe him allegiance. All of human culture is owed to God. And, and of course, there's one human being in particular who has God's inscription on him that's important for this discussion, and who is that? Caesar has God's inscription on him. And he owes God allegiance it's not that caesar is over here in the political world and god is over here in the spiritual world jesus is saying caesar has a legitimate authority that's been given to him by god and we should respect it but ultimately everything belongs to the lord including caesar and caesar will have to give an account to god for how he governs the people that god has made he is god's servant And this is a major question of political theology, that if Caesar, the civil magistrate, is God's servant, and if Jesus is the king of kings, which means that all the kings owe Jesus' obedience. He's their king. He's the king of all the kings. The Bible is very clear. Lord of all lords. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That means he has authority over everyone who has authority. Then how does Caesar learn what Jesus expects of him? If he's God's servant, He has to learn it from the Bible. That's where you learn what God's will is. And who teaches people the Bible? The church does. While I do believe that the church and the state have distinct authorities from God, the church plays a unique role in shining the light of God's truth on every area of life, and that includes the political realm. Let me say that again. The church plays a unique role in shining the light of God's truth on every area of life, and that includes the political realm. So, Reformation is about Christians offering all of life to God, including our political thinking. And, you know, the great historical revolution, uh, reformation of the 16th century is one of the reformations that God has done in history had huge societal change. It affected every aspect of human culture, from the church to the family to the arts to education and to political life. I mean, political life in Europe massively changed during the Reformation, and it all stemmed from Christians like you and me reading the Scriptures, believing in the grace of Jesus Christ, and then thinking through the implications of the gospel in every area of culture, including our political thinking. And so they were creating a culture, a kind of civilization that was centered on the person of Jesus. That's what the Lord is doing. And so while revolution means overthrowing political authorities, reformation means shining the light of God's truth and the gospel on the political authorities as well as on every aspect of life. And when the church does that, A second thing happens okay so it's not just that the church works for reformation to bring all of life under the wisdom and and lordship of christ and the scriptures but the second thing is that then the church becomes a resistance movement when we do that we become a resistance movement Now, the word resistance can mean different things. And, you know, maybe we need to be careful about that. Romans 13.2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, I understand resist there to mean revolt. Where Jesus did not revolt against the state. The state has a God-given authority, and that we should be model, law-abiding citizens. We 100% believe in that as a church. But there's no way that you can read the New Testament or read church history and not think that the church is going to have clashes with the state. It happens all over the New Testament. And it's happened many times throughout church history. Jesus told his disciples this was going to happen. And this is not an armed resistance, but a spiritual resistance. And I heard a, a portion of a sermon by a, a, a pastor this past week, uh, and he was talking about how he had been visiting a, a country in East Asia, It was a country that's closed to Christianity and uh, while I was there, one of the locals, who was a Christian brought him to a bookstore and he showed him in the bookstore that there was a whole Christian section in the bookstore, and there was all kinds of books about discipleship and you know honoring God with your money and marriage and all these things and and the man who is from this country, he said, "What do you see is missing from this section of christian books and the pastor looks at it he's like i don't know it looks like a lot of christian books i don't i don't really see i don't really see what it is and the friend says there are no books on the church the government of this closed country knows that if christians are just individuals they're not a threat if christians just care about their finances and their friends and their devotional life and their 30 day bible reading and the rest of it they are not a threat they become a threat when they organize Because their allegiance is to a different king. Governments know that churches like this are a resistance movement. We are a part of a kingdom with a different king that's not of this world, that is coming to this world and is being established in this world, but it's not of this world. And actually, I I just started this week a a book by uh, Wang Yi. Uh, Wang Yi is a leader in the house church movement in China. And in 2018, the Chinese government really began to crack down on regulating uh, Christianity more and more. And on December 9th, 2018, Wang Yi was arrested. He was a pastor of uh, Early Rain Covenant Church. And hundreds of leaders and members of his church were detained. All their property, they had quite a lot of property, was, uh, was confiscated or destroyed by the government. And you might say, why would the Chinese government do that to a church? These are just decent citizens trying to love their neighbor and worship God, why would they do that? Well, the defining quality of the house church movement is not that they're done in secret. You might picture uh, house churches in China being done in secret, that was maybe 50 years ago. Now there's some that are like 500 people. I mean, they, they've gotten to be quite big and they're not trying to be secret actually. But this is, what, this is what the book says. The most fundamental identity of the Chinese house church is that it refuses to comply with the government's demand to register with and submit to official structures that exist within the People's Republic of China for the regulation and oversight of all religious practice, including theology, preaching, and pastoral education, in short, spiritual governance. And so the house church movement is a spiritual and political resistance movement. That is who we are. And you might say, well, yeah, that's, that happens in other countries. That's, I mean, we're in America. We don't have to think about that kind of thing. Well, I was just talking to one of our members this week who is praying outside of Planned Parenthood. Just this week, it's the 40 Days of Life is happening right now where, where Christians around the country are, are, are praying vigils to... To stop the abortion industry, it's been a uh, the, uh, Christian position for thousands of years of the value of human lives within the womb. Actually, I just heard this statistic uh, a couple weeks ago that globally there are 73 million abortions each year. And just to put that in perspective, the total number of people who die in the world in, in 2023, the total number of all other causes was 61 million. 73 million abortions. And I, you know, by the way, I want to say to you, if you're here this morning and you've had an abortion, I want you to know that you are welcome here, you are loved here, and we want you to experience the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. It's healing and life-changing. You will absolutely experience that love and welcome in this community, and you'll experience it from Jesus Christ. But what we're standing against, what these Christians are standing against, is the abortion industry. And the Bellingham police told these Christians who were praying and shedding light on the abortion industry that if people even feel harassed, it doesn't even matter how nice what you said was, you know, have a nice day. We have some resources if you want them. If they think your intentions are bad, you could be arrested. That happened in Bellingham this week. I mean, that's like thought police kind of stuff. Your intentions, you didn't even do anything, could get you arrested The church speaking the truth is a political and spiritual resistance movement. Our master was crucified by a government. They knew that even though he wasn't a revolutionary, he was still a threat. And so what what makes the difference between revolution and resignation on the one hand versus reformation and resistance on the other? This is the big difference. Revolution and resignation come when we don't trust god and so we take things into our own hands revolutions are like you know god's not going to do anything we got to overthrow this and we're going to fix it no you're not going to fix it you're just going to be a hypocrite and and resignation says god's not going to do anything so we might as well just go along with it reformation and resistance comes when we believe jesus is building his kingdom in the earth it's not our power it's not our wisdom it's not our purposes And there is not a molecule of human life that is left untouched by the claims of Jesus that he is Lord of all. And when Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's, he's talking about everything, including Caesar. (laughs) That is our political theology. And so the great saying of the early Christians, let it be ours as well. Christ is Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love your kingdom, the kingdom of your beloved son. We thank you that you've transferred us from the domain of darkness into, the, into his light, marv- your marvelous light. And Lord, uh, Lord, as we seek to live our, our lives under the, the gracious rule of our king, give us hearts that trust you. And uh, may we know your love for us, and may that love make us people of resolve and courage to love our neighbors and to speak what is true. And uh, Lord, we pray for your people in every land who worship you, and are um, though they are a spiritual uh, resistance movement, um, they are there for the good of their community as we are here. And so fill us with your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.